0: Thank mm-hmm. you. everyone to episode 89 of some like it scott part of the media plug podcast network i'm your host scott shelton and on this week's episode of the podcast we're keeping the quarantine friendly streaming service fair going with a review of amazon prime's black comedy mystery thriller blow the man down before we get to that however with me as always i have my co-host scott harvey scott how are you holding up nearly a month and a half into this i don't know social isolation yeah. Well, I mean, according
1: to uh, the governors and stuff in Southern states, we're done. We're good. So, I mean, I'm great. I'm, I'm feeling great. Well, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to get my haircut next week. I'll probably be going to the movie theater in a couple of weeks, you know.
0: Yeah. Panama no, City Beach um, the week after.
1: Right. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. I mean, people are already crawling all over Jacksonville Beach. Um but, you know, I, I, I'm doing all right. I'm pretty much the same I'm finishing up my final law school classes this week, which is kind of surreal, especially doing it in this manner. But, I um, yeah, I I just don't know what's going to happen with this whole situation. Now that people are going back out, potentially um, with with, you know, Tennessee and Georgia and South Carolina and probably some other states to follow, um, saying they're going to open up, re, you know, reopen a lot of businesses um, including George is saying like restaurants and theaters, like I said, um, I don't know. I feel like the, the second wave might be coming sooner rather than later, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but you know, they did say today that North Carolina is not postponing the bar exam yet. So fingers crossed that, um, I can, I can take that in July and get on with my life. But, um, I don't know if any of us will be really getting on with our lives for a few months still
0: yeah, and because I guess because of the all the application process that you did, you still are taking the North Carolina bar, right? You're not taking the Tennessee bar?
1: No, yeah, absolutely. I'm still taking North Carolina. I have my study materials. guess, I'm gonna start studying as I had planned to like after exams um, end in, in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, who knows whether I'll actually be taking it in July or not? The confusing thing right is that Georgia last week postponed their bar till October. And yet today their governor is coming out and saying, oh, no, we're going to open up bowling alleys like on Friday. So I'm not exactly sure what their priorities are, but it doesn't seem like the practice of law is one of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it is interesting. Uh, (laughs) Maybe a separate special edition of the podcast. uh, Yeah. Talk about the. Uh, interesting decisions of some of some you know, governors. John,
1: John Krasinski has his some good news that he's been doing. I think we should do some bad news or some more bad news, maybe. Some and that's bad. where we could talk about that.
0: Well, hopefully we'll, we'll cut the bad news there, although that will only be temporarily, I imagine, because we are going to talk about COVID-19 and uh, its continued ramifications on the entertainment industry in the news section. But with that, we might as well dive into our review for the day. And that is, of course, Blow the Man Down. Co-directed by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy, Blow the Man Down is a female-centric, noir-ish black comedy mystery thriller starring Morgan Saylor and Sophie Lowe as two working-class young adult sisters, Mary Beth and Priscilla, in the town of Easter Cove, Maine, and they are left to deal with the aftermath of their mother's funeral. After a fight at the post-funeral gathering, Mary Beth goes to a bar where she meets a man named Gorski. Marybeth drunkenly leaves with him and ends up crashing his car, ultimately leading to an altercation at the local docks after she finds blood in his trunk. Gorski follows her and meets, well, let's just say a shocking ending, an end which Marybeth and eventually Priscilla feel compelled to cover up. And the rest of this film is about how Marybeth and Priscilla try to cover up this crime and and the movie also explores a subplot featuring character actress Margot Martindale as a local brothel operator, as well as June Squibb, Annette O'Toole, and Marceline Hugo as a trio of concerned local citizens for the good, uh, who are concerned with for the good or the harm this local brothel might be having on the Easter Cove community. Scott, is Blow the Man Down an effective black comedy mystery thriller and a worthy addition to the hashtag MeToo era of film, or did this movie huff and puff but never quite blow that man down?
1: Yeah, I feel like we've been a little hit or miss recently with our, like, straight-to-streaming movies and stuff that we've been reviewing. Obviously, we had a real stinker last week with uh, with Love Wedding Repeat uh, on Netflix. Um, although I did have someone tell me recently that they would give that movie a 6.5, which uh, I don't know if they were grading on the Jay Habib grading scale or not. But that, that does seem awfully high for, for that film. But um, re- regardless, uh, Blow the Man Down is pretty good, actually. So I I, I enjoyed watching this one, Scott. Um, on paper, you know, it's the kind of thing that I, I typically enjoy this, this genre uh, of film or, you know, it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me, just plot points and themes and stuff like that. And so I was expecting that I would, would like it a, a pretty good amount. And I mean, I wouldn't say that I love the film. I, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's great, but it's, it's very good. And it's, uh, it's absolutely a solid quarantine watch. I am impressed by the confidence of the two directors. Uh, you mentioned their names, so this is their directorial debut, I believe. Um, And and I'm impressed by the confidence with which they take on, you know, this really sort of slippery tone to the film that you've described of being a black comedy, but also sort of a mystery thriller. It has, you know, it's been compared to like early era Coen Brothers, like Lud Simple and Fargo and stuff like that, which I think is is a pretty solid comparison. I also think there's definitely some like David Lynch overtones, uh, particularly in terms of uh, if you think about like the central idea in Twin Peaks of like what's lurking beneath the shiny veneer of small town America. I think this movie is definitely uh, getting at that. And, and maybe what the kind of things that has to be done, that kind of, that have to be done in order to preserve sort of this idyllic image of, of small town America. Uh, I thought the setting was, was pretty evocative, uh, evocatively rendered here in like the small town in, in Maine and new England. Um, you know, a lot of times with these small, small town dramas, they're they're more set more in like the midwest or, or even in the in the southeast so i kind of like seeing this spin and up in the new england area a little bit it felt like like this movie is kind of like if if stars hollow from gilmore girls if they made a movie about the type of uh, dark things that have to be done to to preserve stars hollow the way it is like you might get something like this and uh, blow the man down uh, i think the performances are, are pretty good here um I think Margot Martindale does kind of steal the show. She does have the showiest role for sure, um, but I, I think it's a it's a solid ensemble uh, across the board. With you know, not not a ton of names that you'll will, you'll will recognize, but I think those central uh, actresses of Sophie Lowe and Morgan Saylor, who I did know from Homeland, um, I think they're they're solid in, in the leads. They didn't blow me away, but I don't think they're the type of performances that are supposed to blow you away. Um, or blow the man down for, for that uh, matter. But um, regardless, uh, I, th- I think this is, like I said, I think this is a solid watch. Um, if, if you think that this is going to be something you're going to like, just based on that description that we've offered, um, then you probably are going to like it uh, again. I, it's not, it's not doing anything incredibly new. I, I mean, I, di- I didn't exactly know where it was going, but you know, this, this isn't the most original or innovative film that you will watch this year but in terms of a you know a straight to streaming recommendation while we're in quarantine it's only 90 something minutes long heck yeah it's absolutely worth your time so i, I definitely recommend it
0: yeah it's a, it's a really short film um which is nice it's nice in quarantine i, I think i've watched episodes of tv recently that are longer than 91 minutes uh, to be honest i think i watched an episode of a, of a show the other day that was again a little bit more anthology but basically was movie long episodes um but anyway yeah i i think i agree i think that this is I think ultimately I shake out average and I think there's some there's some things that are a little bit better than average in the film I think one of the things that it does well is sort of that Fargo Twin Peaks kind of feel to it where it's like the setting is almost more interesting than the characters that that are there that you're seeing that you're interacting with that you're living with for the 90 minutes I I can't say that I really cared that much about any of the characters but the overall feel of the town and what's going on in the town is is and kind of the mystery of the town is really interesting to me it's like all right what is happening in Easter cove right it's not really like oh what's going to happen to you know priscilla and mary beth like yes that that does matter and you and you do, and you are still interested in what's going to happen but ultimately i don't really know if i if i really cared that much um not again uh, you might feel differently I, I think that i was just a little bit less intrigued overall with some of the characters but i agree that that Margot martindale probably steals the show in terms of performances and that's because i think what's going on with her character in kind of a a subplot of this particular theme of what it takes and what has to be done by these sort of local people who you might look at and be like oh like they are the bedrocks of this town they are the you know the what is it i can't remember the trio the names of the trio of women but it's like june Squibb, annette o'toole and marceline hugo like what are the these these three women who are kind of like the bedrock of the town? Margot Martindale is also a, a bedrock feature of the town. But what do they have to do to preserve that image, is what you're saying? And I think that I was maybe even a little bit disappointed that it felt like that was kind of relegated to um, a secondary plot. It's it's I think it's too dismissive to call it a subplot, which I did. I know I did do in the intro, but it's more just like a secondary plot to the film. And I think that what I found most interesting is taking Margot Martindale's character and saying, you know, she is someone whose character did what needed to be done to preserve the town in a different time period. And there is now this backlash in a new era of all right, these other women uh, are now going to have to do something about Margaret Martindale to support the ven- uh, and, and preserve the veneer of the town. And I think that that is a really interesting commentary. I think that was the thing that interested me most about the film, about how you know, essentially what you need to do shifts over time. And it's not a groundbreaking idea, but it's it's an interesting thing to explore, especially in, in the context of, you know, I don't know whether you actually call this a Me Too film, but in the context of Me Too, uh, in a female-centric focused film, what do women have to do sometimes to each other to preserve uh, and better their, their, like, local community and local society? And I think that's probably the most interesting thing that this film does.
1: Yeah, I agree, and, and and you know, I didn't really address the me too angle. You you asked about it, but yeah, I think it is something that does give this movie a little bit of a distinctive spin because a lot of the movies that it it was it was inspired by, with the exception of Fargo, probably, are not female centric, and we don't necessarily always get to see um, female characters at the forefront in these types of films. So yeah, I think it it is effective, and for the reasons that you're talking about too, is sort of this theme of the the evolution of of morality in these. Uh, in these small towns, I think is an interesting idea. And yeah, m- maybe it is relegated a little bit. I mean, I think they, I think the, the main plot line, the main through line about uh, Sophie and Margaret Saylor's character is them kind of coming of age and discovering the types of things that have to be done. Uh, but yeah, it probably doesn't strongly play into that theme as strongly as it
0: yeah, and I think that it takes away it, to talk about the thing that I like the most about the film. I think one of the things that I I struggled with the most is that as you know, in some in some elements, a really strong directorial debut from Bridget Savage, Cole, and Danielle Crudy. I think it's sometimes I I hate the use of, of this phrase, but it's like it kind of felt like it was their first time directing. Like <laughs> I know you're you're all in your eyes. It, it felt like they they had a lot of ideas that they wanted to explore, and they weren't experienced or. Um, I guess, clear enough in how they wanted to execute against that vision. And I like experienced filmmakers can do that all the time, too. I don't think it's a first time director thing. Uh, I say that more tongue-in cheek. But I do think that some of their themes and their plot, like might have just gotten a little bit away from them or or they just couldn't quite figure out how to meld everything together to keep me as interested uh, as i as I thought that I could have been uh, if it had been explored slightly differently. Uh, other than that, like I think we both commented because we actually watched this film together over over two seven. Was that the score is like great, amazing score. I think Uh, the music. I don't know who's responsible for the score itself, or if it's both of them. But Brian McComber and Jordan Dykstra are both credited with uh, for the for the score in this one. And so I really I really enjoyed that element of the film. I think that you talk about, or I should say, I was talking earlier about how I feel like the setting was the most interesting part of the film. I think the score does a lot to enhance that and enhance the uh, the I guess kind of the the environment of the film. Um, I really thought that that was used effectively.
1: Yeah, it, it's very memorable. And yeah, it fits fits the movie and the tone of the movie like a glove.
0: Yeah. So I think if we jump into the sort of the lead performances now, that is Morgan Saylor and Sophie Lowe. You mentioned Morgan Saylor had a minor role in the first few seasons of Homeland as the Brody's daughter or elder daughter. I don't remember if they had multiple daughters, but their elder daughter uh, in the TV show. Uh, Sophie Lowe, a name that I'd never heard of before, but what did you think of these uh, two performances, these sisters who, like you said, are, are sort of coming of age, uh, or a, a coming of age in, in a sense, but more a, have an eye-opening experience about the town that they grew up in over the course of this film?
1: Yeah, I think for some of the reasons you've described, this isn't necessarily an actor's piece. Uh, I think it's more about the, the direction and the writing and the atmosphere of the film than it is maybe about individual performances, again, maybe other than that Margot Martindale performance. Um, and so for that reason, I think, uh, it's tough to say that they really like stood out as, as an outstanding element of this film, but I think that they do probably what is required of them. Uh, and I think that the main, the main attribute, which I think they bring to the movie is that I really did believe that they were sisters. I think that, um, the, the dynamic between the two of them, Sophie Lowe, maybe, maybe being the, the slightly more put together, um, you know sister who who's kind of thinking about their parents legacy and and preserving that um and and you know working at this business that their parents have left them and, and you know just thinking about the future and morgan Saylor as the sister maybe who maybe just gets in her own head and some of her her bad decisions are kind of what what get them in this predicament uh you know just sort of the natural like bickering you know, between the two of them in some moments that just comes from their differing personalities. Again, felt very vo- believable, felt like what you would see from, from real sisters. Uh, and so I think, yeah, again, again, they're not showy roles or anything, but I think that they fulfilled them nicely. And I will be interested to see what they can do in the future with, you know, bigger roles, because I think that based on the strength of their performances here, they, you know, they do deserve to, to maybe take a step up for their for their next movie whatever that may be i'm sure that they both have probably projects in the can
0: yeah i think that's an interesting question i mean you're talking about morgan Saylor. if if homeland was a breakthrough which i mean i guess it wasn't i mean that was all the way back in 2011 2012 when she was like a main a quote-unquote you know main recurring character on the show and it's you know i haven't seen her in too much over the past few years sophie lowe i'm even less familiar with like i was saying i think she does have a couple. I was looking at her Wikipedia page, and she does have uh, some other films, but nothing major. And I wonder if a if a movie like this is really going to put them on anyone's radar. I think that, I mean, we're only. I mean, let's well, be honest. We're only reviewing this film and talking about this film, and maybe even watch this film because of the because of the pandemic. Like that, mm-hmm. that doesn't affect whether or not we enjoy the film any more or less. Um, and you know, maybe because of that, more eyes are going to be on it. More talent agent's eyes are going to be on that. I don't, I don't know if they have, I mean, I'm sure they have talent agent reps already, but maybe, you know, more, more producers will have their eyes on, on these two people. And maybe they'll get more roles for it. I don't know. I think I'm kind of in your camp here saying that uh, they serviced their role really well because their role wasn't to be a Margot Martindale. uh, If you were to compare another performance in the film, you know, Margot Martindale was really the only person who had any sort of like set piece, you know, character acting moments in the film and i and i agree that the the believability of these two performances is high and that's because they are understated there's not some like you know over the to- there's no over the top moments really for these sisters you know yeah there's a couple moments of uh over the top violence maybe in one instance but because of the particular situation that she finds you know one of these sisters finds herself in it makes sense what like what happens is believable uh you know maybe you're scratching your head and like screaming at the television's like oh you should do something different here like why, why do you try to cover it? Why don't you just call the police? Um, but that's not what happened. And, and again, I think that's believable because you're freaking out. You don't know what to do. And, and I think that speaks for the rest of the film as well. Uh, even though I think that as much of a central focus as they are in the first 30 minutes of the film, it feels like, yes, they still have their moments in the last you know, half to two thirds. But again, the focus kind of becomes less so on, on their story and more on the story of the town as a whole. Uh, for better or for worse, but it also means that their performances don't don't stand as tall in the spotlight under things. And maybe that's all speaks to what you're talking about around., uh, it's hard to say it's a memorable performance from either of them.
1: yeah. I mean I mean, a movie that I thought about a lot while I was watching this, just thematically and everything is is thoroughbreds. But I think that this is an area where it differs from thoroughbreds in the sense that uh, thoroughbreds very much was a, an acting piece. and you really do did come away from that movie saying, um, wow, these two performances—like they—they should um, go on to do big things. And you know, Anna Taylor Joy and, and Olivia Cook. But at the same time, again, they were Sophie Lowe and Morgan Soto. They were—they were asked to do d- different things than those actresses were do were doing in Thoroughbred. So I think that they do deserve some credit for for you know maybe maybe giving the restrained performances that the script called for, whether they actually will get that credit, uh, I think you're right to say probably remains to be seen. Probably, you know, will will depend on how many eyes get on this film. Maybe there will be more than usual because of the quarantine, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like Amazon is really hyping this movie up as like, oh, you need to watch this or anything. This is our, our, you know, big latest original film or anything like Netflix might do. Um, And so I I, I don't know whether this is going to reach a huge audience, but
0: you know, I, I hope it does. Yeah, I mean, hopefully people will watch it, but th- that also comes with the curse of being a part of Amazon Prime, and the reality is, I mean, they they don't really uh, advertise very much on their streaming service, to be honest. And they and when they do advertise, it's usually for some of their television shows. Like, I did see some ads for Hunters this year, which is, like, the Al Pacino, um, you know, starring Nazi hunt, hunting movie, and, like, obviously they promote Mrs. Maisel like crazy. I was and... going to say,
1: in terms of original content, like, though, the one big ticket thing which they do have is is Mrs. Maisel, but yeah.
0: other than that, yeah, you're you're probably right. Yeah, so it's tough being on that platform and breaking out as a film because any film on their platform that breaks out is usually be, has a theatrical debut because that is their model to you know take their films into the theaters and then take them onto the streaming service after. And it's also just realize that Amazon's business isn't making movies; <laughs> like it's just not what they're focused yeah. on um so it's unfortunate i think that if this were something on if this were a movie to debut that were being distributed on a netflix or you know on hulu or disney plus i was gonna say this thing. seems like
1: a hulu movie absolutely yeah you know, probably i think have gone straight to you.
0: it would get a lot more eyeballs on it just in terms well at least it felt like it would be marketed a little bit better um but maybe that's a, a separate mm-hmm. discussion Uh, because Amazon is who had it and uh, that's that's just how the cookie crumbles sometimes but there are some other uh, performances we've talked in reference to Margot Martindale's performance as Enid who is this kind of local brothel operator slash owner in Easter Cove Uh, there's a host of other supporting cast members as well who have you know varying degrees of roles from like cameos to very minor roles I mentioned a few names like June Squibb and and annette o'toole and a few others earlier scott anyone beside i mean margot martindale let's definitely talk about her because it does seem like she's the one who stands out but any other names you want to throw into the mix before we dive in there
1: yeah no i mean i think those are those are probably the ones uh, to mention uh, what's uh, the guy will Britton, i believe is his name yeah. do, does pop up as a police officer here most known at least by me for his role as billy autry uh, and everybody wants some. So it, w- it was cool to see him again outside the setting of playing, you know, a, a redneck ball player with with a dip in at all times. That was kind of a culture shock, but I enjoyed seeing him. But yeah, I think I think you've highlighted the other performances here. Margaret Martindale really does, I, I think, shine when when she's on screen. Uh, it, it is a showy role, but I, I think she um, takes advantage of, of that and really does make something more out of this character than maybe a, a lesser actress might have. Um, she's just kind of this this world weary woman, right? Who, who sees the the morality play that's playing out in front of her, but in her own head, you know, she she kind of understands the the virtue of what she's doing and the fact that maybe what she's doing is actually making the town a safer and better place than uh, it would be if she wasn't there. But just trying to make uh, you know the the other ladies in the town and other people in the town who ha- have a very different view on things. Trying to make them understand that I think is where uh, a lot of that world weariness comes from, and we see it wear her down over the course of the movie. She, you know, it, it is a very strong and dominant personality to start the movie, but her facade sort of starts to wear off as as the movie goes on, and I think Margot Martindale really believably uh, portrays that sort of downfall that she takes. And yeah, I think the, the three women who play the, you know, the, the sort of, uh, coven of women who, uh, are opposing Margo, Margo Martindale. I think they're also effective. June Squibb, um, you know, is doing, uh, somewhat of a, a maybe more wholesome riff on her character from Nebraska, uh, where she got an Oscar nomination. Uh, and, and so it's always fun to see her, but yeah, across, across the board, I think that they're, they're solid with, of course, Margo Martindale being the clear standout.
0: Yeah, I would prefer you just call her by her true name, esteemed character actress Margot Martindale. Of course, but yeah. I'll let, I'll let it slide for, for a few minutes here. Uh, I also, on a side note, just realized that she was actually in Secretariat as well, which is honest, maybe the funniest part. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> uh, of it all. Anyway, yeah, no, Margot Martindale is great. She kind of does have a couple you know, standout scenes where she has to give the character actress performance that she, ha- uh, she has been called uh, that before, a character actress. And, and she does that. She delivers those scenes pretty well sometimes i think those scenes feel out of place in the film oddly so it's like it's this kind of weird at odds of like there is this big character moment in a movie that doesn't really have and doesn't really feel like it's meant to have character moments in that way um for be- I, I honestly don't even know if that's a good thing or a bad thing I, it, it definitely means that it stands out more like her performance stands out more because of that but just again it, it almost felt out of place uh in, in i the mean film. It- and on that point,
1: I would say, I mean, and she as a character stands out from most everyone else in the town. I think that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the tension comes from. So I, I think you're right that it does feel a little time at, at times like, oh, here we go. Now here comes Margot Martindale doing a monologue or whatever. But I I think that they were trying to go for, you know, make, making her character clearly distinguishable from the other personalities in the town. Uh, and so on that level, I think, it yeah. but maybe not on every
0: level no it does because you're right it, she does stand out in that way and and she i mean she is the focal point of the whole theme of a, a town and a community moving on past you know a previous stage and, and unfortunately her character is unable to to evolve with the town and with these other women uh that, that you talk about being kind of opposed to what she stands for and one of the and i think that what's most interesting is is you see that you know, something along the way, something along this journey, and I think that Margaret Martindale does, you know, characterizes this really well on the screen, that she gets lost somewhere along the way. Like, she she isn't able to separate the reason she's doing something from the act that she's doing itself, it feels like. Like, you know, just to dive a little bit into spoilers, but, like, this brothel that she runs and kind of, actually kind of operated with um, with Mary Beth and Priscilla's mom and, to some extent... You know, was developed in order to protect the younger women in Easter Cove from sailors who would come ashore who essentially would otherwise just rape the women of the town. And that's the reason yeah, why. That, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: that's what she says. She says, if they don't, you know, if my girls aren't there, then they're coming for your daughters instead. And so yeah. she sees this as kind of a gatekeeping, what she's doing.
0: Yeah. And, and she sees this as this sort of like public good, right? Like, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to see how she's like she's not able to move past you know this thing that she's doing and she gets lost she she loses the plot so to speak along the way of what she's doing and realizes that maybe the town no longer needs that what the town and what the what the community and what that particular point in time needs has evolved into something else and needs you to support the local women in a way not necessarily distract like distract a ha- you know a threat or harm these women have. And, and I think you see part of that in, in terms of the other, you know, the other criminal activities that she falls into, like the whole, you know, one of one of the whole like key parts of the movie with this Gorski character is that, you know, she essentially either had someone murdered, had one of her own, you know, um, you know one of her own women murdered uh, because of, you know, in a secret or stolen money from her, whatever it might have been. That, that was a little bit unclear to me. Um, and then, you know, and also, and just kind of losing track of, of the reason why she was that, you know, why the brothel was started and and why she was doing what she was doing. And I found that uh, a really interesting thing. And briefly touching on the theme of like corruption. And I just think Margot Martindale does a great job encapsulating all those really kind of this, the the past, she's not able to escape the past essentially and move forward into the future Mm -hmm. uh, era, like everyone else in the town is able to do. And and I think that um, she's kind of an artifact of that and plays that really well. So uh, if that's all to do with the characters, then I think moving on to uh, elements of the plot, which I kind of already started to talk about, but there were, I think, a few plot points and a few themes worth hitting. And, and one of the ones that we kind of briefly touched on already is like how effective is it as a sort of noirish, ish me too, black comedy mystery thriller. It tries to be a lot of different things. I don't know if it's perfectly any one of them, but it does try to straddle the fence in a couple of different uh, zones or yards so to speak, does it do any or all of them effectively?
1: Yeah, I, I think it does. I think that I chuckled a few times, like black comedies are not going to be the type where you're laughing out loud. Um, but, but I did chuckle a few times and it, and it does just sort of, it maintains the right tone um, where it doesn't, you know, go too far down that ha 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 lane, but also it, you know, it, it doesn't get too dark in places either. I think they, they walk the line, pretty effectively there. And as a thriller, I think it works too. I think there are some good twists in there. I mean, there's a discovery of a body that is not who you think it's going to be. There's, you know, you've talked about this whole subplot with, with Gorski and also this other call girl who is also kind of involved and she yeah, finds his a stage at one point. And, and there's, you know, some good drama that comes out of that. And then the ending, which I'm sure we're going to, we're going to get to in just a minute Sort of just the final image that you see, I thought is was, was a really nice twist that, um, a, a very nice dark twist to end the movie that I think, um, really sums up, uh, the point of the movie in a way that I was really satisfied.
0: By. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, I, I've kind of said my piece on a lot of the Margot Martindale, you know, side of, of the plot. And I think, uh, and I think that's probably where you get again for me the most interesting exploration of things because i think that as much as the movie tries to sell itself in like the first 20 to 30 minutes as this sort of like mystery thriller element of all right like these you know these two sisters it arguably in self-defense you know killed this guy and instead of informing the police they decide to cover it up are they going to get away with it are they going to be able to escape uh and get away with it they also come across $50,000 Fifty thousand dollars or whatever of money, are they going to be able to get away with that money? At the same time, um, you know what are all, what are all these moving parts that are going to happen? And I think that it, it then leaves behind that mystery thriller element uh, to the, at least to an extent for the again for the next hour and and picks it back up in certain moments and certain in certain scenes, of course. But it, it goes it goes on its merry way in other ways, and so I think that it kind of again tries to want to be a lot of different things, and I, I don't think it fails in doing any of them but I don't think it knocks it out of the park in doing any of them either um, for better or for worse. Again, like, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I do again, wish maybe certain parts and certain elements were explored a little bit more. um, You know, I hesitate. The the movie should have picked a lane, but it also might've benefited a little bit from picking a lane. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say maybe, maybe a longer running time would have helped it because it just does. it, It does feel like a movie that tries to wear a lot of different hats And on paper, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But, um, you know, unless you're the Coen brothers and you can get away with making Fargo, which is like a 96 minute movie or something, I'm pretty sure. Um, I I don't know that these directors are quite there yet. And and they probably could have used a little bit more padding to to explore everything they wanted to explore. But, you know, I always hesitate to say that a movie should have been longer because I do think, you know, that this movie is pretty economical for the most part.
0: Yeah, and I think that the, in, rather than saying I think the movie should be longer, I think rather, I mean, it's again, it sets itself up as this mystery thriller in the first 20 minutes for the most part, like not even really touching on these other characters. More consistent, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. And, the, and then it kind of, you know, it shifts gears 20 minutes in and, and starts to explore some very different themes from what you get in the first 20 minutes. And so a slightly different construction might have helped it a little bit. Um, but again, I'm not a filmmaker, and I'm sure. Uh, i couldn't i couldn't put together something better so who who am i who am i to say that anyway uh, but any other hey, thought d- give there? yourself
1: a little more credit
0: yeah okay yeah fine i could have done better than these two women for sure uh, for sure yeah no uh, absolutely not no i think that uh, it's it, again it was just kind of the effect of the first the expectations that were set me for the first 20 minutes it's not even that they were subverted by the next hour plus it was just that they like they just it just shifted around a little bit and and what was going on different precedences kind of took over after that. And, and again, just led to a little bit of a muddled experience for me overall, but something that was still enjoyable. But in talking about the finale, I, I, I think we might as well just jump straight there, uh, finding out that after all this time, a, a lot of things happened over the course of the film. We don't need to spoil everything. There are, like we said, some very big character moments from Margaret Martindale uh, that we haven't really double clicked into at all and talked about. But the end of the mystery element of the film We will spoil that. So if you want to go watch it, you know, turn, turn it off and come back to this point after you finish watching it at the the end of the mystery is that they do get away uh, with the murder, but maybe not of their own accord. Uh, They, you know, these two sisters kind of stumble their way through a lot of the movie uh, going from scene to scene and making decisions here and there that sometimes again, make you scratch your head a little bit, even though I think that they ultimately are believable uh, in, in what they do. But the last scene is that it turns out they had a little bit of help to get away with it as Again, this trio of women or at least one woman in particular played by June Squibb uh, actually pulled the cooler or whatever they had put the body of yeah. Gorski into and thrown it into the into the lake or into the ocean or into whatever they're on. I, I assume it's the ocean since it's Maine. Um, they it is this it is June Squibb's character who's pulled this out of the water and disposed of the body and cleaned the cooler uh, to prevent the police you know this this detective or this deputy, however you want to think about it and played by Will Britton that you were talking about earlier, uh, before they are able to kind of get on uh, pick up the scent of the of the disappearance/ murder that's happened. And again, going back to that element and, and kind of fusing the two themes together uh, of the film, what a, a town has to do in order to preserve its idyllic image in a new way. you know, we had what Margaret Martindale's character had to do 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now, is, here is what has to be done now. And June Squibb uh, is the person who falls on that sword, so to speak, or takes up that uh, takes up that cross. Scott, what did you think of this ending? You talked about how you thought this was a pretty satisfying ending to the film. Uh, I happen to agree, but I'd love to get more of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that it's a nice ironic twist at the end, right? Because so much of, of that, the action involving these characters is them going after Margot Martindale for supposedly corrupting the morals of the town. Um, and what we discover in the end is they're doing you know, some unseemly things themselves to try. I mean, they're covering up a murder to to also preserve that image in the same way. And I think maybe they could have explored, maybe one area where they could have explored a little bit more is just sort of the, why is it that they react this way to Margot Martindale despite doing the, the, the same things on their own? And I, I wonder if like exploring the, sex versus violence sort of dynamic and the differing attitudes towards that maybe by generation i don't know if if that could have been an interesting direction to maybe explain that more but regardless i thought it was effective i thought it was a nice ironic twist and i especially you know when you you brought up the will Britton character and i think he does play an interesting role there towards the ending because he like he's new in town right and he is very idealistic in his his outlook a fault but like he he, you know there's some implication early on that he might have a crush on sophie lowe's character then he goes to he's at eating dinner with them and he kind of begins to think that that they are lying about you know what happened on this on the particular night when when gorski was killed and that's just like the end of the world for him he like his whole sort of view of her is shattered because she would lie and so he has a very black and white view of morality. Uh, that probably comes from him being new to the town. Um, And, you know, we see at the end that no matter how someone may appear, right, Margot Martindale outwardly may be the person who you think is doing these things, you know, more explicitly. Everyone's in on it, like everyone's in on it in terms of preserving this image. And even, you know, the supposedly sort of docile exterior of, uh, of June Squibb and these other women, right, who are you know there there's a kind of an amusing moment where I believe it's Netta O'Toole who is is like sort of waiting on her husband almost hand and foot or whatever they 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 play the image of like the doting housewives but they're doing their part as well just as as Marco Martindale is doing her part and it kind of takes all of them working together even if they don't always agree about the way that they're going about it to to create what we see in this town and so I like that they followed through on that idea in the end and I think that having June Squibb revealed as, you know, being the one who's covering up this murder uh, makes a lot of sense for what the movie's trying to say.
0: Yeah. And I think that, again, kind of tying the bow on the theme of what it takes to, you know, secure the idyllic image of the town. Maybe at one point in the past, it was creating a distraction for these men who would come into town, you know, on the weekend or whenever it might be monthly, whatever it is and perpetrate violence against women, and then it becomes rather than needing to, ne- needing to provide a distraction with other women, instead it, it's kind of almost banding together and, you know, creating a society uh, that supports women and protects them in a way that is more empowering than, oh, instead of raping these women, why don't you just go have sex with the prostitutes in town? um i think that that it's an evolution of this whole theme of like what does it take to prevent violence against women the conclusion of that is dropped at the very end and you're you're left uh to your own devices to to sort out how you feel about it and how you think it fits into the overall structure and themes of the film but overall i think like i said it was satisfying and i thought it worked for me yeah i think i'm on the same page all right well with that i think that we can start our wrap up phase scott what was your favorite scene from blow the man down yeah. We've talked about some of
1: them. I mean, I do like the ending. I think that one moment we haven't necessarily mentioned one of the more fast paced sequences in the movie is the chase in the beginning between Morgan sailor, but between Morgan sailor and, uh, and Gorski and sort of the way that that comes to an end with her kind of emerging from a hiding place and just stabbing him in the throat, basically. Harpooning him. Uh, yeah. In the throat is, is shocking. We both kind of reacted shocked. Um, and I thought that that was a nice sort of abrupt end to um, to this you know more action actiony sequence that maybe shows that this is a different type of movie than you might necessarily be expecting uh, you know at first glance.
0: Yeah, I uh, you're leaving out the the probably the most graphic part, although they don't necessarily show it on screen, but when she beats his face in with a brick uh, to, yeah. to actually finish the job, I think that that was as shocking as the uh as the harpoon was just in terms of like sheer shock value. Cause it comes out of nowhere. Uh, even though you see for a, like you, you know, before it happens, what's going to happen with the brick and you're just like, Oh God, is she going to do it? Yeah. Um, no, That, that is definitely one of the more shocking things in terms of it being a mystery thriller. Cause I do like a, a good thriller. I think one of the scenes that work well for me is when Sophie Lowe's character, her name's Priscilla is, you know, using her skiff or whatever to help the police take, you know, take the, take them to, a body they found, which is what you were alluding to, where it doesn't actually, that body doesn't end up, it doesn't end up being Gorski. It ends up being Dee, who is the the local prostitute that Gorski had killed before picking up Mary Beth. And uh, that that scene builds tension in a really, really interesting way because you probably can guess that it's not going to be Gorski, but I think the movie does a good job both with the cinematography uh, and the score in that moment to build that tension up because it still could be and we don't, I mean, even if it was that was that didn't spell doom for the for Sophie Lowe's character at that particular time, because there would be no way that they could have tied him to them. But uh, I thought that it, it builds tension really well in, in that scene, and um, yeah, it, it worked. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving? Let uh, blow the man down. I am giving blow the man down a
1: seven point five. I think this is a promising debut for the directors, and yeah. I I look forward to seeing what they do next.
0: Yeah, I think this is a, a slightly above average film. Maybe entering the good territory, not quite great, um, a little bit lower than you at a 6.8, uh, but I definitely recommend it. If you've worked your way through a lot of the, the new streaming content that has come out and you want, uh, you know, a little bit more of an oddball, very much an indie mystery thriller that explores some interesting themes, this film is definitely worth checking out. Uh, and you should if you have Amazon Prime, which most people do, but not for their streaming service. All right, well, that should just about do it for our discussion of Blow the Man Down. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be giving you our weekly COVID-19 update on the film and entertainment industry, as well as an update on a long gestating musical remake of an 80s film, Valley Girl. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Summit Scott. As promised, we will give our regular COVID-19 update on the film and entertainment industry. Uh, We, of course, were speculating last week on the podcast whether or not Soul would be moved. And uh, suffice it to say, about 24 hours after we recorded, but before we posted the episode, Soul was moved uh, to the November slot that was originally held by Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, which is a Walt Disney animated film that was supposed to come out in, around Thanksgiving. Uh, of course, soul now taking that spot. I think the week before Thanksgiving, November 19th, I think it might've been. And, Ray and the last dragon is moving to like the start of next year, both of which I'm, I'm kind of, I'm both, I'm, I'm pretty excited for. So uh, a little bit of a bummer for me. Uh, Cause I'd rather see both of them sooner rather than later, but that happened. And then thankfully, you know, we're recording on Monday, which is a little bit later for us, but we waited the extra 24 hours to record this week, Scott, and we benefited from it because Warner Brothers decided to move a whole lot of movies uh, today from their previous release dates, a lot of DC uh, extended universe and just DC movies in general, because I think technically not all of them are extended universe movies, whatever. They did move the Batman back a few months from June 25th, I believe, of 2021 into October, so giving it the Joker release date, actually, from uh, from last year, Batman is going Matt Reeves' is Batman is going to get that release date in 2021. Uh, opening up their summer spot. Tenant and Wonder Woman 1984 both have not been – I mean, of course, Wonder Woman 1984 was moved uh, to August 14th, but both of them have, uh, for the time being, again, stayed where they're at, Tenant July 17th, Wonder Woman 1984, June uh, – sorry, August 14th. Scott, uh, I was joking in our group chat earlier today that with moving Batman from June to October of next year, you've found where Tenant will fall, ultimately. I think they will move Tenant back a year into – summer 2021 i think it's it's crazy for them to leave this movie in theaters but uh i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm totally wrong this film's gonna yeah, come well, up and it's gonna make a billion dollars i don't know
1: i mean you know I, we were joking about it at the start of the show but like theaters are opening up in one state you know maybe we, if this goes somewhat well if people are actually going out to the theaters if people aren't getting sick again i think that's those are big ifs right um, yeah. but if, if, so, then, then maybe, you know, other States will start to give it a chance and, and by July we could, we could almost be there, but yeah, will they still want to take a chance on this being the first big movie back in theaters. I mean, personally, I think it would be incredibly hype right with, for, for movie theaters to be open, things to be, you know, approaching some sense of normalcy. It's okay for people to go out again. And how do we celebrate, you know, uh, but this, you know, getting out of quarantine, uh, by going to see Tenet. But I think that's probably still a pipe dream for the moment. But it yeah. is maybe looking a little bit better than it, it had in the past, just because, again, like I said, these states are opening. It's probably a dumb decision. But at the same time, they have, there has to be some information that they're relying on that we probably don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying to see both sides of it uh, to, to some extent. I do think it's, it's too early and a dumb decision. But I think there probably is some information out there suggesting that uh, things are improving for them to to go out and make this decision.
0: I think I'm, look, I'm jaded. I'll admit it. Uh, I think what they're looking <laughs> at is that their death rates aren't that high. And I think that they're a little bit confused about why that might be. I think it might be because everyone's isolating, uh, socially isolating from each other and social distancing, yeah. and et cetera. And we might see that change when they reopen. Look, I'm jaded. I hope that I'm wrong. I don't want to be right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I suspect that it's that. And then also, uh, People like uh, local government officials, uh, campaign donors requesting that their businesses be able to operate again, I think is also probably another reason why you're seeing some states reopen their their businesses. Again, jaded perspective. Well, Uh, we're talking about
1: politics here. I mean, I think jaded is pretty much the only perspective you can have nowadays. Yeah,
0: I mean, mean, that that might be true. A different conversation, but that's my thought. I think that, look, like theaters in China opened back up a few months ago. Right. They opened up for a weekend. Of course they were, they weren't playing any new movies. No new movies were coming out there. I think they were showing like avatar and Avengers movie and a couple of things like that, which would be cool. Like I'd love to go watch those in IMAX again. That'd be awesome because I mean, otherwise you'll never have that experience again. But the reality is, is that no one came to the theater. There were a couple of theaters in China that sold four tickets an entire weekend and they closed down again. They just closed all the theaters down again because of that. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see something like that because yes, theaters are absolutely losing money on their fixed costs and their real estate. That they've invested in but they're gonna be losing more money if they're then licensing content into their theaters paying employee you know paying furloughed employees their hourly wage to come back and work again uh, they're just gonna be burning more cash if no one's gonna buy tickets and I think that no one no, I don't think anyone's gonna to go to the movies right now one because there, again there aren't gonna be any new movies coming out and two um, I think people are gonna be scared I think I think families in particular like like families who might go see something like Mulan for example which is again right now gonna be one of the earlier uh, blockbusters that hits theater at july 24th if the, if the release date holds i don't think that families are going to feel comfortable going out and see mulan look that's three months away still That could a lot of things could change in three months time but right now with theaters reopening i just don't think that that people are going to have that confidence i don't think people are going to have that confidence for a really long time
1: yeah and i did see someone else point this out which i think is true that theaters are going to be given permission to reopen in georgia yeah. starting next week whether regal and amc will actually say hey yeah let's open the theaters let's show some old movies whatever i think that's a completely different question although you know amc especially might want to take the chance with with how how things are looking financially for them uh they may want to take this opportunity to say hey if we can open up a few theaters in atlanta or something like that could be some revenue for us at a time when they're really not making
0: yeah, maybe. Again, I think that they'd be running a risk of actually losing more money just on their operating costs because then they'd start to be you know yeah. operating costs again. And they, I mean, last week this is getting way too financy, probably, but they did roll down a five hundred million dollar credit line so they could stay more liquid and survive this. Um, I mean, they're I mean they're taking a huge hit. Obviously, we've been talking for the last several weeks about how you know some analysts on Wall Street are saying are predicting that they're going to go bankrupt before the crisis ends. But last week they did uh, roll down a revolving line of credit of five hundred million dollars, which will Help them stay solvent uh, during the pandemic. Again, I, I don't know how long a co- that will last. A company like AMC, which opera, you know owns uh, a, a little over a few, like a little like in, something in the thousands of theaters, like low thousand ish theaters in the country, and that's obviously very costly from a fixed cost perspective, owning the real estate or sometimes leasing it, depending on what cities that we're talking about here. Um, but we'll see if they survive. Um, but again, a lot of real estate changes there. Something like the Batman. We'll see if tenant holds. Talking about that. Uh, Sh- I think Shazam 2, a bunch of the DC movies got like release date changes. Somehow The Flash oh, was moved up a month. I don't even understand how that happened. It actually, its release date <laughs> was actually pushed forward. Um, and then because he's others... so much faster than
1: everything else. Yeah, right? yeah, just, yeah exactly. That, yeah.
0: <laughs> the Suicide Squad, that's already had happened, but The Suicide Squad got delayed a year. It's coming out fall of next year now. Um, Black Adam is, is coming out November 2021. That's the one that. Oh, has long been rumored that Dwayne DeRock Johnson will be starting. And I think that's confirmed. Now he's wanted to do that movie forever. Um, that's that's going to be happening. Shazam two was, I think release date was updated. I think that's coming out in 2022 now, but yeah, a bunch yeah, of, DC. I, movies I don't movies. care when that
1: one comes out personally. Yeah. You're in the
0: minority there. I think a lot of, most people like Shazam. Yeah, no, I definitely am. Um, but yeah, no, I think that I love Zachary Levi. So I'm not going to, I'll give him a, a longer rope to hang himself with. And I was a big truck man. Uh, no, 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 I actually haven't seen <laughs> Chuck. That's funny. I, I never think about Chuck with Zachary Levi, but that's probably how most yeah. people think of him. Uh, anyway, so th- those are all a lot of real estate changes. One thing that's still holding for now as well is Dune, and we got a little bit of an update on that last week when there was – I forget which trade it was that it got a cover, uh, a cover article, cover piece for, but a lot more details come in, came out of that, Some some shots, some stills. Uh, from the set as well as the film itself being released, which we can dive into here in a second. But uh, an interesting tidbit of news coming out of that is that uh, as we kind of s- speculated and and thought that would be the case, that Denny Villeneuve is not telling the story in one film; he's telling it over two films. We'll see. You know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine didn't perform well enough to get it a sequel, and that was supposed, I think there was supposed to be a second movie for that as well. If it did perform, I don't know if Denny Villeneuve would have directed it, but there was supposed to be another film uh, in in that world, but the numbers didn't support it. Who knows if if this is a, you know, this sort of Dune sequel, this, you know, part two type film would be dependent on the performance of the first Dune. But regardless, the story is going to be told over two films.
1: Yeah, I mean, creatively, I think it does make sense because I think um, I'm pretty sure that both the um, David Lynch version and the, like, failed Hodorowski version or whatever that I don't know if it was ever released, I think they both tried to do um the the whole movie and or the whole book in one movie um which there's just too much mythology there's there's too it's too dense. dense dune is just simply too dense to try and distill that even to like a three hour movie um so i think that creatively that is the right move commercially i think you're right maybe to be to be a little more questioning of it um but yeah i i, I don't know whether this movie can improve on blade runner blade runner's numbers i mean i i'd like to think uh, that it could just because maybe in, you know, in the circles of people I follow on Twitter and in the film world and stuff, I mean, everyone loves Denny Villeneuve. He's, he's one of the, you know, the favorite directors amongst sort of like the film Twitter sphere. But I, I do have to tell myself sometimes that, that it's a very small percentage of movie fans. Yes. Um, and so his name alone probably won't be enough to, to get, you know, a large amount of audiences to the theaters. Uh, and so there's going to have to be something in the trailers or, or whatever from this movie that, uh, that is going to get people out there. But, I, I, you know, obviously the source material comes with some audience. It's one of the, you know, best-selling uh, sci-fi books of all time. And I think, you know, if they market this right, if they kind of give it the, the vibe I'm getting from the pictures, which is just like Star Wars and Mad Max a little bit, then I think that's something people could be into.
0: Yeah, and you talk about having something else, you know, some X Factor that maybe Blade Runner 2049 didn't have. Of course... You know, you would think someone like a Ryan Gosling and a Harrison Ford might be an X-Factor type to get people into the theater uh, to see the film. It wasn't. Um, but, I mean, this film has Timothy Chalamet. I mean, Rebecca Ferguson. I don't know how many people are going to go to the theater for Rebecca Ferguson. But, I mean, okay, Scott. But, yeah, again. <laughs> Again, film Twitter, film Twitter. I know, um, I know. Yeah, Timothy, Timothy Chalamet. Well, okay, uh, look,
1: she she was in a Mission Impossible movie. I mean, I don't think that that people she's don't been in two to of see, them, actually.
0: No, you know? me, people did not go to see the Mission Impossible movie because Rebecca Ferguson was in it. Scott Calm down. No,
1: but people people know her from from that setting, and they may be like, "Hey, I remember her as Ilsa Faust in two of the greatest action movies of the last decade." I mean, I I, I mean, she's not going to get people to the theater on her right. own, but I think like you know maybe this is the point you're going for that along with timothy chalamet jason momoa oscar isaac all these yeah. other people who they you know they will recognize that maybe you know she's she's a cherry on top of all that.
0: uh i think i think one of the, the two big people that they can kind of rely on to get maybe a younger audience which which may have been what struggled with later in 2049 is timothy chalamet and zendaya both of who i think definitely have a pull a natural pull for a younger audience uh i think you also have people that are a little bit of an older guard a little bit more um kind of awards-worthy actors, so to speak. I mean, not the Tim- Timothy Chalamans today aren't, but, you know, when you have people like Oscar Isaac, you know, Javier Bardem in the cast, Josh, you know, you have Thanos, you have Josh Brolin in the cast, Stellan Skarsgård, who, I, mean, I don't know if he's been nominated for an Academy Award, but, I mean, won Emmys for Chernobyl last year. Um, you know, this is a really, really strong, a really impressive cast that Denny Villeneuve is working with from top to bottom. I think that, you know, if Blade in 2049 kind of relied on the bankability of two key stars in Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling, I think this this movie maybe relies a little bit more deeply or allows itself to rely a little bit more deeply on on a on a more robust, a more um, I don't know what the right word is, I guess uh, you know a full a full laundry list of people. Well
1: rounded, yeah. A
0: well-rounded cast, yeah. Um and and so that the, it could benefit from that. I also think that you're you're spot on with the description of like a Mad Max cross Star Wars, which I mean, obviously speaking my language, I don't know if that's speaking everyone's language because it does, count to be like a sort of like dark and kind of gritty looking aesthetic, to it. Um, Later in twenty forty nine, in some ways, yeah. the opposite. But how did
1: Mad Max? How did Fury Road do at the box office?
0: I think it did pretty well, right? Uh, yeah, I, again, I think that's. I mean, a lot of that might be the Max brand. Um, but I mean, that's that's not necessarily the case, I guess. I mean, not like Mad Max had been much of anything for 20 years. Yeah, it it was a summer release. Mad Max did Mad Max did 375 million. Okay,
1: so it did amazing. So, uh, yeah, it was, but it was a summer release compared to this. I don't know if that's gonna, um, you know, if that matters at all, but I mean, it, it
0: probably matters some. Yeah. I mean, would a, would a movie make bigger numbers in the summer? I guess probably. Right. And, and I mean, you know, it's, it's a
1: word of mouth situation. Like I, I, I mean, Mad Max, when it came out, I don't know, you know, what the weekend numbers were like as, as it, as its theatrical run continued, but yeah. um, I'm sure the word of mouth got around because, you know, people were hyping this up from the very beginning, calling it one of the best action movies of all time. Um, and so that, that did make people want to go out to the theaters and see it and, um, Blade Runner 2049 obviously had some decent word of mouth as well, but um, it's not like, oh, this is, you know, a blockbuster movie. This is a big action movie that everyone can go out and see. I mean, it's it's a very cerebral, very dark um, sci-fi film that isn't for everyone, frankly, whereas I think something like Fury Road does have a, a more of a mass appeal. So we'll just see what Villeneuve really goes for with this one.
0: Yeah, do we know if Dune's going to be rated R? I mean, one thing Fury Road didn't have going for it was that it was rated R. If Dune's rated PG thirteen, then it might even fare better. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I I really don't know quite enough about the source
1: material to to speculate as if you know whether it was rated R or not. But I think I mean all of Villeneuve's movies have been rated R. I think he will probably want to make this rated R. But I mean, we'll see. Maybe because the other movies haven't done as well, he might try to aim for a PG thirteen.
0: Yeah, maybe. I'm sure also Warner Brothers will be pressuring him pretty hard to keep it PG thirteen. If it's not, um, just what? because
1: was Arrival a PG thirteen? I was just I was thinking about that.
0: I mean, what a different <laughs> type of movie. Um, it's
1: it seems like of the ones he's done that that one potentially could have been, but I again I don't know whether it was. Yeah, uh,
0: Arrival's PG thirteen,
1: and and I mean. I, again, I don't know the numbers, but I would go out on a limb and say that was probably his most commercially successful film. But
0: yeah, probably. Yeah, Sicario. I don't know. Maybe Sicario did better. Mm, I don't know. But yeah. Well, it's probably comparable. Yeah, I mean, Sicario had the benefit of having like really, really bankable stars in Emily Blunt and Josh Brolin. Whereas Arrival, I mean, not that, not that Amy, not that I'm not an Amy Adams stand, but. I think maybe a little little less bankable with her and Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker than
1: It's all speculation
0: in the yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. I mean so so let's look here. Sicario. Sicario did globally oh god, no, this movie did way worse than I thought. $85 million at the uh, yeah. office. Uh that's a little surprising, I guess. I don't know, maybe hard R. It was probably a hard R. Yeah. Arrival at two hundred and three million. I think actually Blade Runner probably did better than that, but it's just because it was such an expensive movie to make. I mean, and it had it had existing IP that it was going off of. Yeah, Blade Runner was this most commercially successful movie, but Arrival was probably the movie that profited the most. I mean, I don't know how much Prisoners cost to make. Um, yeah, that
1: might have been how he got to do Blade Runner even. I mean, who knows?
0: Yeah, either either way, this movie, for the time being, is coming out the week before Christmas, December 18th. Uh, we'll see if it holds up. Right now, they it seems like they think that it will. It's becoming very crowded in that time of year with Top Gun Maverick and a whole bunch of other films. Coming out in December, again, I, I don't know if I'd be surprised if, if this movie got pushed, and if it did get pushed, um, would it be a full year, or would they would they shift gears to make it a summer release? I think that might not even necessarily be a bad idea for the film, um, but we'll see. All in due course. Indeed. All right, Scott. We'll switch gears now. That's our COVID-19 update. Hopefully, we had a little bit of positive news in there, uh, but a good discussion nonetheless, and we'll switch gears now to talk about this musical remake of an 80s movie movie. Uh, Valley Girl, starring Jessica Roth in the lead role, as well as a couple other people as well. This film was originally slated for a 2018 release. was shot in 2017, I believe, but then got pulled from the release win- uh, release schedule of I forget who's making this film because of all the controversy around Logan Paul that happened back in early 2018. But this movie finally makes its long-awaited debut millions and millions of people have been shouting where is the 2018 version of valley girl Scott. well why don't you tell us where it's been uh and what it looks like based on the trailer that you saw last week
1: yeah i mean so the original is not a musical as you have alluded to the original is i think more of a comedy drama perhaps starring uh deborah foreman and nicholas cage um and you know it, it is it is a name that people know it was i think it was a pretty popular movie in the 80s and You know, I mean, I'm probably the only psycho who kind of does this type of stuff, but I am like an IMDb surfer. And what I mean by that is like, if I see an actor or actress in something and I like them, then I will look up their IMDb page. I will, you know, go to their upcoming releases and just look through all of the films that they are in development or whatever stage they are that are listed as upcoming for these particular actors. So this one has been on my radar for a couple of years just because... Um, it was one that just keeps kind of popping up. You know, Jessica Roth, obviously, as, as you mentioned there, from Happy Death Day. Um, you know how big of a fan I am of that. Um, and she does have musical chops, right? She was in La La Land. She showed what she can do as one of uh, Emma Stone's friends in that movie. Um, and and so she, I think she's a perfect person for, for this type of role to get, you know, to get a leading role in a musical. But, you know, it would pop up on her page. Camilla Marone is someone else that I'm a fan of. Uh, from movies like Never Going Back and and, Lena and the, the Bear Girlfriend, well, we like to know her outside the context of who she's in a relationship with. But yes, um, she's <laughs> also a great actress, as as I was saying. Um, so they popping up on her, you know, it was popping up on her IMDb. So again, this is something that I was aware of for a couple of years now, but it has taken this long to get released. You know, as you've alluded to, maybe some of the Logan Paul. I mean, personally, I hope that the Logan Paul bad press is the reason that. Uh, this movie has been held over and not because it's a bad movie, right? Because a lot of times when when yeah. movies are in release hell for for a long time, um, then it, it doesn't necessarily bode well for the quality of the film. But hey, one of my top 10 movies of last year was in release hell for a long time. Um, and, you know, it was one of my top 10 movies of last year. So not necessarily a bad thing. Which film? Under Under the Silver Lake. All um, oh, right. Yeah. That and. One <laughs> And so I but but looking at the trailer for this movie right like it looks like it's going to be sort of a it has some it's like a in 80s version of Grease maybe a little bit it has like the classic 80s I mean it seems like it's going to be a jukebox musical it has like some classic 80s songs and stuff appearing in the trailer at least um we have you know the the actors I've mentioned there but you know you have a, you have a pretty solid cast you have Uh, Alicia Silverstone in here, who seems to kind of be making a comeback recently. She's been in a couple of things. Mae Whitman is someone who um, popped up in the trailer as well. Judy Greer is in this movie. Uh, There's a few other people I'm forgetting, but, you know, it's got a solid cast. Um, And and so I am optimistic about this movie. It is getting a a I think you said this, but it's getting a digital release next month. Um, And yeah, I expect that we'll probably be talking about it on the podcast. And I hope that Again, the, the long wait is not indicative of the quality because I think Jessica Roth will probably be really good in this. And I want her to have, you know, a, a breakthrough. To, to some extent, Happy Death Day was a little bit of a breakthrough, but the sequel didn't do very well at the box office. Um, I, I don't think she has that recognizability yet, but, you know, she's so good in those films. And I think this is um, a chance to show off another aspect of her as a performer that people who just know her from Happy Death Day may not know that she has. Uh, and so I, I'm excited to see this as a showcase for her and for, you know, for Camilla Marone, um, whether, whether it is a good movie or not, I guess will will remain to be seen, but you know, I'm rooting for it.
0: I have no idea the extent of Camilla Marone's role in this film, but she's like super far down the bill list on, on Wikipedia, at least. Yeah, so she does know.
1: appear in the trailer. I don't know exactly, you know, I don't know what that indicates, but yeah, you're right about that. She's not, you know, she's not towards the top.
0: Yeah, so uh, again, hopefully hopefully, it's a relatively significant role. But again, you have to think this movie was shot three years ago, like definitely before she was well-known. This was like, was this like right after Happy Death Day or maybe even b- shot before Happy Death Day for just, I mean, Rowan? Happy Death Day came out in 2017, so. Okay, so it must have been after then. Um, yeah, so that's it, that's something, right? Like I think this is going to be interesting to see what, what ends up happening with this. The, the good news is, for the release hell thing and questioning the quality of it it was going to get a theatrical release it's only because of the pan of the COVID 19 pandemic yeah. it's not getting a the theatrical release and and what you talked about with under the silver lake is that in you know, a24 didn't even bother with a the theatrical release uh for, for that so take that for what it's worth we'll see uh may by you know come may 8th what's what is the state of the movie industry maybe everything will be back open again uh, all the movie theaters will be reopened Uh, just kidding I really doubt that but yeah no I'm I'm interested to see what this is this isn't really my type of movie but I'll probably watch it given the current state of everything
1: right and that's what I was going to say I think this is a movie that could benefit more from a digital release than from uh, I I mean during this particular time at least than a theatrical release because you know you're talking about a summer release it probably would have been opening up against a, a big ticket film in theaters that uh, therefore, what I've heard is box office numbers, and you know, this is the kind of fun, splashy musical '80s nostalgia type thing that people want to watch during this, you know, occasionally grim time in our lives. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think this movie—I I wouldn't be surprised if it, you know, do, does decently well on Amazon, whether it's good or not, right? Because I mean, like Love, Wedding, Repeat—I think it, it has remained in the in the top ten on Netflix for uh, s- several days now since you know it came out last weekend. So people are still watching this because this is the type of movie that they want to watch. I think during this particular time, and the movie sucks. So the quality doesn't really seem to matter that much.
0: Movie sucks to you. Some people apparently thought it was a six point five. Well, so not not professional movie critics. That's all I'll say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not that um, we are not that we are either. Not that we are either. But the actual professional movie critics have been have tended to agree more with us than with uh, the person I spoke to.
0: Yeah, no, that's probably fair. Is this coming out on Amazon Prime?
1: Um Valley Girl. I mean, I don't think it's going to be free, but I mean, I'm oh, sure okay. you're going to be able to to rent it for.
0: Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, did I say Amazon? I don't. I mean, that's just that's just what I think of when um, I I think about a movie not getting released free streaming anywhere. I, I that's where I would normally rent it from is Amazon. Oh. So that's probably why I said that. But I mean, it's not going to be a, a $20 release like
0: Invisible Man was. Maybe maybe Are uh. Are you sure? Maybe that it a 10
1: won't be a early?
0: Yeah, I, I don't. We'll check back in on a couple weeks on that. I'm curious. We'll we'll see, because Troll's World Tour was, and I mean, obviously it's a studio film, but um, yeah, and
1: it has you have franchise behind it and everything.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: That's true. I mean, well, we we, I think we're we're isolated from from trolls, obviously, because it's not anything that's remotely on our radar. But I actually think if you looked at the numbers for those movies, and I'm not saying that we should right now because I don't think anyone cares except for us. But I think those those movies probably did did numbers like
0: oh, considering yeah, I mean we're on the
1: family- third one or something now. I
0: think I think the second one. But um yeah, no, I mean Trolls I and mean, it's a family movie, right? Like I, I don't know how much it technically I mean, I don't think they released VOD numbers for the film or whatever, but I think Trolls back in twenty sixteen when it came out, it definitely made like the hun- the hundreds of millions figures, not the tens of millions mm-hmm. figures. So no I think that's that's valid. I don't think Valley Girl in a the theatrical release would, I mean, maybe it would be lucky to make tens of millions. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what uh, eyes it would get on. But I'm, I think it's the eternal question of like, would this movie do better just going straight to Netflix? It probably would. Uh, but yeah. Take it or leave it. It'll be out on VOD May 8th. And with that, I think that should do it for episode 89 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today?
1: Uh, you know, stay inside. I know that if you're living in one of those states where things are opening up, you might feel the temptation to go get your mullet trimmed or something. And look, I'm sure that, you know, they're going to be taking the necessary precautions in those places, but you don't know how much a, a single trip to the barbershop could affect everyone around you. So uh, think long and hard about your decisions to to go out and to change, um, you know, how, how you've been living these past few weeks, because, like, I think things are getting somewhat better but that's only because people are, are quarantining and you know are staying inside and for the most part i mean obviously we have some idiot protesters and stuff in some states but for the most part people are following the guidelines and staying indoors and i think that continuing to do that whether things are open or not will make this end quicker rather than than later and and avoid that second wave that i hope is not going to come when you know states start to consider reopening
0: yeah, it's so funny. I, I remember a lot of those protesters not appreciating protests from other uh, politically minded groups. And yet there they are now, lib- liberating Michigan, liberating Virginia, liberating whatever other state was on that list. Yeah, Good for that. I don't Good even to go there. there. No, look, hey, it's their right to protest. It's just. Uh, it is. It is their first amendment right? It is interesting. Where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? I'm at Scarby. Dent. And I am at shelton2013 over on Twitter. Please follow our podcast on Twitter as well at MediaPlugPods and subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And finally, don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out and you can receive various rewards depending on how much you're willing or able to donate to the podcast. We'd appreciate it so much even if you only contributed at the $1 level. Again, just for $1 a month, you can get the episodes early. Uh, and honestly, we'd probably even listen to your suggestions at this time uh, going through the coronavirus of what movies we should review every week. So think about that. Check that out for yourself at www.patreon.com mediabookpods and uh, pick the two that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple podcasts on Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate it. If you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared all that jazz. And with that, We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with a review of Corey Finley's next film. Already came up once today with Thoroughbreds. Corey Finley, the director of Thoroughbreds, his next film, his sophomore outing, will be debuting on HBO in the coming week. That's called Bad Education, starring Hugh Jackman and several other, uh, I think, relatively notable names in that film. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you then.